Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 4th, 2012. Mm-mm. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, yes. Just looking at the lineup here. I feel like I'm making progress on the list. I, I The pile's getting smaller. I'm making some progress. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is, sadly, no shortage of crazy things being said out there, people seeming to think that, well, they've got to help poor Jesus out and his irrelevant gospel message and... You know, because no one wants to listen to it, and so we gotta spice it up. We gotta, we gotta add some razzmatazz to it, you know, to to make it better because it's just not working anymore. <laughs> listen, you and I couldn't save somebody if we tried. We couldn't regenerate a single dead sinner if we wanted to. In fact, people are brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, not by convincing them that they need to make a decision to become a Jesus follower. That's not how Christians are made. Remember, we're all born dead in trespasses and sins at war with God. Uh, we we do not obey God. God, We don't want to listen to him. We, In fact, we want him dead. And anything that has to do with God and his truth, we pretty much are going to attack as part of our sinful, fallen nature. In fact, we want to put God into our debt. Is that not how we operate? And so, listen, in order for somebody to be brought to Christianity, to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, that's not an exertion of their will. That's an exertion of God's. God is almighty. God is God. You and I are not. And there are clear biblical passages that say that people are not born again of their own decision or of the human will. They're born of God by his electing, his choosing, his redeeming, his regenerating, his causing to be born again. We as Christians are called to proclaim the good news, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's what we're called to proclaim, Christ and him crucified and raised again bodily on the third day for our justification. That's what we're called to proclaim. And you know what? 
we somehow have come under the notion that, you know, that message needs help. No, it doesn't. It doesn't need help. You don't need to add to it, you know, gift giveaways, raffles of cars and television sets and iPads and, 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 and to, you know, tack on something really cool and hip like Batman, the Dark Knight. We, none of that is needed. None of it is needed. Preach the word in season, out of season, and God will add to those who are being saved. It is God who saves. It is God who decides. The scriptures decidedly teach against this concept that we all have free will. There was only three people in all of human history who had free will toward God. They were, in order, Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. Each and every one of us, we we don't have that. We're all born dead in trespasses and sins with an inborn sinful nature, dead and at war with God, and we need to be rescued. And it's God who rescues us. So much of the silly things that are going on in the church today d- demonstrate that the people who've risen to the office of pastor in the church have lost faith have lost confidence, don't actually believe that God's word accomplishes what it sets out to do. It's not our words that we proclaim. We proclaim Christ's words. We proclaim God's word. And God will accomplish what he's going to accomplish. It's, it's like I said, you and I, we couldn't save a single person if we wanted to. One plants, another waters. It's God who gives the increase. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I got to warn you ahead of time, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is a long one. And the reason why it is a long one is because, well, we've got a sermon that needs to review, be reviewed. And there are so many things wrong with this sermon, it's impossible to, well, review it briefly. And so uh, in our sermon review time today, we are going to be going down to Wilmington, North Carolina and listening to a sermon about what what has God saved us from? What are we saved from? Or what do we, you know, that's kind of the premise behind it. And believe me when I tell you that from time to time, a sermon comes along that is such a mess that um, you, you ever have one of you know you, you know we all have shoes right you know you ever get a knot in your shoelace that you you marveled at and went how on earth did this knot get made and you sit there and you know you you're trying to pry the knot apart and to undo and untangle and the whole time you're marveling going I can't believe that a simple pair of shoes and a simple set of shoelaces got to be in such a state. That's probably a good metaphor for the sermon that we're going to be reviewing today. So I just want to let you know it's so bad it's going to take some time to really work itself out. So let's talk about what we're going to talk first hour though. We have, well, um, in the Museum of Idolatry, I just added a brand new exhibit. I happen to be, I moonlight as the curator of the Museum of Idolatry, which is an internet-based museum, and you can find it at alittleleaven.com. And I go through periods where I update it and periods where I just say, forget it. 
And uh, I've begun to update it again. The reason why I go through these ups and downs here is because that website, more than any other website that I've worked on, is the most depressing. I mean, it's ew, it <laughs> it's hard to put, to to do a series of of exhibits in the Museum of Idolatry on a daily basis without without becoming really really angrily cynical. And <laughs> that's all I'm going to say, but uh, if you want to uh, enjoy weeping and gnashing of teeth and crazy things like that, you can go over to the Museum of Idolatry. It's it's kind of like a a catalog uh um, it, with every exhibit, you know, each year just getting worse and worse and worse. It, it's it, it's a place where the slide into apostasy in the American church and well, churches around the world is chronicled for us with evidence of said problems. So uh, I've got a, uh, a I've got a museum piece that I put in there today entitled Batman: The Dark Knight and Easter Story. We'll be talking about that because as we get closer to Easter, everyone knows that we've got we've got to make. The Easter story relevant. I mean, simply telling the story about the crucified and risen Jewish guy, you know, from the line of David, eh, yeah, it's boring. That's, yeah, who needs, that's not relevant to my life. But tack on some Batman and Robin and Dark Knight stuff, and, and you know, now we're cooking. <laughs> you got my attention there. So we'll be taking a look at that. I've got a Patricia King update about, t- talking about outrageous peace. Um, I've got I didn't get to the Pyromaniacs blog. Uh, Phil Johnson has weighed in 18 years late uh, by his own admission regarding uh, pragmatism versus biblical preaching as it pertains to uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. We'll, uh, we're going to take a look at that story. I've got a great quote. Uh, from CFW Walther that was posted on the NisioLutheran.com uh, website entitled Preachers of Christ are Disturbers of the Peace, or so they say. And this is a great, <laughs> this is a great quote, one worth, one worth tucking away and uh, remembering. And then if we have time, um, boy, I tell you, the LGBT communities going crazy, going nuts. Uh, you know, they're they're very upset that they have not been had their uh, <clears throat> their their marriage desires recognized by the broader church, and uh, there's a post over at the Huffington Post entitled "Queer Christ Arises to Liberate and to Heal," and we're just going to read a little bit of that story and ask ourselves if this is the real Jesus or well, um, well, a made-up Jesus, because the Bible warns us about false Christs, false prophets. Um, other Jesuses that are not the real Jesus and things of that nature. And then, like I said, our number two is going to be a long sermon review. And I'm not going to divulge too much more there. Just trust me when I tell you, you will need all of your protective gear and paraphernalia to get through that sermon. So uh, without any further ado, let's dive into the program proper. That's our music to inform everybody that we will be doing a Patricia King update from the Extreme Prophetic website. The name of this video is Outrageous Peace. Here's Patricia King. I've had a burden on my heart for those of you um, that have been struggling with stress and anxiety. And I'm seeing in the spirit so 
many being uptight because of the circumstances in your life and that so you're you're seeing in your spirit uptightness in people because of the stresses of life wow i hang on a second here let me look in my spirit um uh, how exactly do i need to look in order to see in my spirit as to whether or not folks have uptightness and it's almost like for for some of you there's been almost like um a pattern of it for so long that your body's actually just spontaneously producing stress. Mm, so if you have a um, a habit, uh, you know, a kind of a you're stuck in an addictive uptight behavior, it, this, then your body will spontaneously continue the cycle of stressfulness. I had no idea about this. Again, hang on a second. I'm going to try to look in my spirit see if I can see it. I, I, uh, how I'm confused. How exactly am I supposed to see into my spirit to see these things? Uh, where do I look? What muscle do I flex? I'm going to break that off in the name of Jesus Christ. You're going to do what? She's going to break off my my stress cycles? It's because he doesn't want you stressed over anything. Okay. I remember years ago on the mission field, I was, you know, things weren't working out right and they weren't yeah. coming in on time. And yeah. I was becoming a stress bucket, you know, and, and God... Did you see that in your spirit? I'm spoke to me and said, Patricia, there is nothing in this world worth being anxious about. Your anxiety, your stress over this, it isn't changing anything at all it's just making you you know what's weird okay you know <clears throat> i you know i just think of the words of jesus you know in the sermon on the mount jesus actually talks about this stuff and he does such a better job than you do patricia and so i mean seriously i can go right to the words of jesus christ god in human flesh and, you know, where Jesus says, you know, why are you worrying about what I'm going to eat or what you're going to drink? You know, look at the lilies of the field or look at the sparrows. They don't sow nor reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds and clothes them. And aren't you not more, worth more than, you know, grass and, and sparrows? I mean, that's kind of the Roseboro paraphrase of what's going on there. So, you know, and see, here's the deal. I know because of the fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead that he actually is who he claimed to be, and that's God in human flesh. Therefore, you know, when he sees into a human being, I know he's really doing it. Uh, and, and when he says that he's revealing things from heaven, I know that he's really revealing true things uh, you know, regarding God the Father or heavenly things, and I can trust Jesus. So my question is, why do I need you telling me that you can see into your spirit and and people are being caught up in habitual stress bucketness, and and, and that you're gonna that somehow you have the authority to break it off? Um, you, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, I know you claim you're hearing from God, but I mean, I I don't need you. I, I, I let's let's just cut you out, and I'll just go right to Jesus because Jesus said this already to the whole world in the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded for all of us to you know to hear and to benefit from. So I'm just going to go to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to cut you out. I don't need you. Uptight, it's making you nervous and sick and hard to be around. And, um, and I, I, I just got the conviction that came into my heart. And I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to repent from my anxiety. And I have a scripture that's one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament that I 
that I really try to live by. At least I allow it to remind me uh, to walk in God's peace uh, when I get anxious. But it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So if you are not happy right now, if you're not in... <laughs> you know, it's... it's oh, <laughs> you know, listen... A perfectly great passage of scripture from Philippians chapter four. There, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It, what, what bugs me is is that by t- ripping that out of context, it you know it, it becomes an imperative. You need to re you need to rejoice in the Lord always. And if you're not, well, then you're sinning. You know. Yet when you read Philippians one, two, and three leading into chapter four, oh man, there is much for you to rejoice about. And it doesn't become a command where you feel guilty if you're not rejoicing. It becomes something that you do because you are, again, reminded of the great things that Christ has done for you. In a rejoicing mode, that might be a sign that you're actually in stress. Mm. And that stress can harm you and hurt you. So if I'm not in rejoicing mode, I could be in stress mode. Your physical health and everything. So start rejoicing. Start praising God no matter what you're going through. Quick, start rejoicing. Get on with it so you can get over your uh, your stress bucketness. And then in verse 6, it says, be anxious for nothing or be stressed over nothing. So whatever you're stressed over right now. Again, it's all imperatives here. And she skipped all of the indicatives in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Oh, just just lay it down. Just okay. let it go yeah, in Jesus' go. name. Yeah, right on. And then it says, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, uh-huh. let your requests be made known to God. Yeah. So whatever you're stressed about, you know, have you ever been, I'm, I'm sure you have because I've been there, when you're all stressed over something and you realize you haven't even gone to God with it yet? Yeah, it, that happens from time to time. And I think, oh my, why didn't I go to God first? Yeah, kind of silly, isn't it? Well, go to God with whatever you're stressed over, make your petition known, and then leave it with him and start praising him and just know that he's taking care of it. Yeah. Again, if we would focus a lot of our time on like the full counsel of the word of God, we would know what Jesus has done for us, how much he loves us. I mean, there's such great things for us to rejoice over regarding what our great God and Savior has done for us. It's written in Philippians 1, 2. And three. So why don't we why don't we focus on those things so that when we get to the imperatives, the imperatives make a lot more sense. And you sit there and go, oh yeah, oh yeah. How could I not rejoice? Look at what Jesus has done for me. And you understand what I'm saying? And it says, and the peace of God. This is the outrageous peace. The peace of God is so outrageous that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. He can keep you in that perfect peace if mm. your mind is set on him. Yeah, therapeutic peace, yeah. Okay. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he gives the key. Once you receive by faith this... There's a key in here? Rageous peace. Just receive it by faith. So I receive it. Then he shows... Huh? you how to sustain it. He says, finally, keep your mind... Whatever is true, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. In other words, in other words, don't listen to any of the stuff on the XPmedia.com because it's XPmedia.com website because it's not true. You know, so that's the key. 
That verse tells us to stop listening to Patricia King. Got it. Okay. Keep focus on everything good, everything positive. That would not include you. If there's negative trying to crush in on you, let it go. Just let it go. Well, remember, whatever's true, since, I mean, you constantly are twisting God's word, that would exclude you from things I need to be thinking about. And set your mind on those things that are good, and it'll change your whole world around you. It's outrageous peace. Yeah. God Again, you, why don't you tell me about all the things that Jesus has done for me that are recorded in Philippians 1, Philippians 2, and Philippians 3, and then the imperatives in 4 will make much more sense, and I will already be rejoicing because of what my great God and Savior has done for me. It has it for you. That his peace he gives to you, not as the world gives. You know, his peace is outrageous peace. And yeah, so apparently, you know, the, all you have to do is receive outrageous peace by faith. Not the forgiveness of your sins. No, no just outrageous peace. Yeah. I'm going to impart it by faith. I have faith. You're going to impart it to us? Oh, no. Uh, tinfoil pyramid hats on, folks. If you have them right now, you're going to need to be able to deflect whatever it is that she's about to do. To bring it out of his heart right now and send it right into you because you don't need to be stressed over anything. Oh, no, no, no. So in the name of Jesus Oh, no, here it comes. Christ, I take hold, Father, of your outrageous peace. And now I she's holding it with her hands. This outrageous peace, she's apparently holding it. I give it to my friends. I impart it to every... Now, now, now she's made the casting of spell motion with both hands out. So, again, if you're not wearing your tinfoil pyramid hat, you may have had something really bad just happen to you. I apologize. I should have warned you. Single one now that needs needs this outrageous peace that passes our understanding. And what we need is outrageous truth. And this is like an outrageous reading of Philippians that completely guts Jesus out of it. I command stress right now. Oh, now we're commanding stress. Is stress like, you know, something that has ears and eyes and, and is sitting around, you know, maybe lounging on your couch, causing you to feel bad? You're going to command it to leave their bodies. I pray for healing, for heart conditions, for autoimmune disorders, for for um, mental disorders that are caused by stress. Lord, any physical condition. Uh, this is like a mini exorcism. Stressing me out too. That they are suffering with that is caused by stress. Any turmoil in relationship that has come about because of stress. How about turmoil caused by false teaching? You're just saying, you know. I break the power of the stress right now, and I speak forth your outrageous peace. Uh, <laughs> this won't do anything, by the way. Into that situation. I'm seeing something right now in my spirit of... Uh, yeah, you are, really. Okay, yeah. Someone who's watching this clip yeah, yeah. Is, is really having a big battle within your family. Uh -huh, There's yeah. family members are fighting over each other, and you've been so stressed. Yeah. And the Lord says, just receive his outrageous peace. He's going to work it all out, get out of the battle zone, get out of the turmoil of stress. It's not worth being anxious about. Put your petitions before him and let the judge of all go to the higher court and let him give you the final word on that and then rest in it. Just rest in his outrageous peace. There's someone else who is really stressed over finances. But and you're seeing this in your spirit. Okay, I'm not seeing nothing. You know? Your breakthrough is coming, and your stress is not helping the issue at all. Just say, yeah, okay. praise you, Jesus. You're working it out. I'm just going to enjoy my day. 
Okay, so just enjoy your day and praise God because he's working it all out. Okay. Let it lift off of you right now. There's stress on someone because... This is like witchcraft. As you've just heard from your workplace that there's going to be layoffs. It looks like you might be included in that and you're really stressed. You think, what am I going to do? What, what, what's going to happen if this and that and the other? It's, it's not worth it stressing over. God is going to take care of you one day at a time sweet jesus just take hold of his outrageous peace now what i want you to do hey, we're done <laughs> oh man I, i've reached the limit of I'm, I'm stressing out just listening to it in fact that's kind of weird don't you think i mean here she's talking about this outrageous piece and i just feel my anger levels increasing with each blasphemy leaving her lips weird how that happens all right moving along For the benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. That must be Easter coming up here. The Hendersons will all be there. Native Pablo Frank is there. What a scene. Over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly, through a hogshead of real fire. In this way, Mr. K will challenge the world. Celebrated Mr. K performs his feet on Saturday at Bishop's Gate. Mm -hmm. The Hendersons will dance and sing as Mr. K flies to the ring. Don't be late. Let his K and H assure the public their production will be second to none. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the walls. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, I think the Beatles did this from a brochure that they received for an Easter service. No, I'm kidding. That, <laughs> yeah, that's not really true. <clears throat> yeah, but it, it could be. Um, from the Church of the Rock website, which you can find at churchoftherock.ca, uh, the uh, headline reads, Batman, the Dark Knight, and Easter Story. Yeah, <clears throat> here, let's see if this sounds anything like that Beatles song. Easter at the Rock can only be described as an extraordinary experience. On Good Friday, we do a worshipful, almost traditional service centered around the passion of Christ and his cross. It's a beautiful touch. It's beautiful, touching, and meaningful. Easter, however, <laughs> is something together, altogether different. Now, this is actually from their website. It has always been about celebration and joy for Christ has risen, but nobody on the planet does it quite like Church of the Rock. We have taken the amazing story of the resurrection and have presented it in a modern parable form that can only be described as Hollywood does Easter. Donning sets, costumes, and a homegrown script written by yours truly, that would be the pastor, um, oh man, we have had some of Hollywood's finest masquerading as the Christ in the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> this is not a joke. In the Wrath of Khan, it was Captain Kirk who died and rose again. And the next year, it was Captain Jack Savior or Sparrow. And then in the Pirates of the Galilean, I appeared as the villain Captain Barabbas or Barbarossa. And last year, it was Wesley from The Prince's Bride of Christ. I did a cameo as Miracle Max. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, this year, we're pulling out all the stops and doing 
Batman The Dark Knight, the caped crusader along with Robin the Boy Wonder will be arriving in the Batmobile and I will be making the requisite cameo, but I'm afraid at this writing that information is top secret. So, yeah, here here's the video promo for their upcoming The Dark Knight and Easter Story from the Church of the Rock. Here, here listen. This Easter Batman, the Cape Crusader, will be visiting Church of the Rock. The dynamic duo will be presenting the Easter story like it's never been told before. Bring the whole family for this raucous adventure as they discover the true meaning of Easter. Set to some of the great music of our time, this is an Easter service you will never forget. Admission is always free and everyone is welcome. Same bat place. Same bat time. We'll see you Easter Sunday. Yeah, there you go. That's from Church of the Rock in Winnipeg, Canada. And, uh, well, there you go. Um, I mean, it just makes you wonder, you know. Did the Beatles actually write their, for the benefit of Mr. Kite, from, you know, a church brochure that they received from a seeker-driven church inviting him to Easter services? Yeah, well, you be the judge. I mean, it it's hard to tell nowadays, isn't it? All right, uh, yeah, a weird thing. I don't know how Christianity survived as long as it did without all of these crazy um, additions to the story. I mean, you know, it, <laughs> who wants to hear about the crucified and risen Jewish guy? No, 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 we're gonna we're gonna add on some more spectacle, Hollywood, if you would, in order to make it more relevant. Because you know, Jesus himself, he doesn't really get to be the star. We need to make Batman the star. So. Just saying, yeah. Okay. By the way, my guess as far as his cameo appearance, probably the Joker. If not, he should. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous, 
so that they too could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Uh, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for fire starter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. back. 
warning. If the people show up to your church this Sunday and the thing they think, wow, what a show, well, then your church has failed. Yeah, their job is to say, make them say, wow, what a savior. Yeah, just saying. Anyway, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we do without your help and uh, we just love the fact that you make it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing all right moving along here From the Nisio Lutheran website, you find this at nisiolutheran.com, that's G-N-E-S-I-O Lutheran.com. They have a Walter Walter Wednesday segment. The headline reads, Preachers of Christ are disturbers of the peace, or so they say. Uh, CFW Walther writes, Manifold are the difficult and arduous tasks of a minister of Jesus Christ. But the most difficult and arduous of all, beyond question, is the task of proclaiming the pure doctrine of the gospel of Christ and, at the same time, exposing, refuting, and rejecting teachings that are contrary to the gospel. The minister who does this will discover, by practical experience, the truth of the old saying, Veritas odium parit, telling the truth makes enemies. If faithful Athanasius in his day had been content to proclaim his doctrine that Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father in eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, if he had not at the same time vigorously attacked Arius and the Arians who denied this doctrine, he would undoubtedly have finished his life in honor and pleasant peace, for he was a highly gifted man." Had Luther followed the example of Staupitz of quietly teaching the pure gospel to his brother monks without at the same time attacking the abominations of the papacy with great earnestness, not a finger would have been raised against him. For even before Luther's day, there had been monks who had come to understand the gospel and made no secret of their knowledge, but they did not come out in public to fight against the errors of the papacy. Accordingly, they were allowed to live in peace and quiet as long as they held to the cardinal point in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope. Worldly men and all false Christians cannot but attack those who teach a faith and doctrine different from theirs and regard them as disturbers of the peace, as peace-hating, quarrelsome, and malicious men. These unfortunate people have no idea of the blindness which enshrouds them. They do not know how gladly the boldest champions of Christ would have kept peace with all men, how much they would have preferred to keep silent, how hard it was for their flesh and blood to come out in public and become targets for the hatred, enmity, vilification, scorn, and persecution of men. However, they could not but confess the truth and at the same time oppose error. Their conscience constrained them to do this because such conduct 
was required of them by the Word of God. Thus, Walther, and great, great quote, and he's absolutely right. The Christian pastor, the Christian pastor has a biblical obligation. And let me read it for you so that you understand what it is that Walther is referencing here um, as far as the duties of a pastor. The duties of a pastor do not just include only or merely or selectively choosing to only preach the truth. Let me read this. From the epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Titus, chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, it's not an either-or situation here. The job of a pastor is both and. You must preach the trustworthy word as taught and, and rebuke those who contradict it. Paul then goes on. For there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. It doesn't say you must get along with them. You must embrace them in brotherly love and elephant room unity. It doesn't say anything of the sort. It says that they must be silenced. You must preach the truth and oppose and rebuke those who teach lies. This is what God commands pastors to do. They must be silenced. Paul says, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, once said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Christian pastors are not called to just preach the truth. They have a twin responsibility. They must oppose and rebuke those who teach false doctrine. Walther was right on. Moving along to the uh, team pyro.blogspot.com. By the way, I'm... I, if in case you're wondering, uh, if you remember back a while ago, we covered, we played the the audio from a video trailer for an upcoming movie that I think is now being released regarding card counting Christians. You know, that supposedly there's Christian uh, blackjack teams. Um, we're not going to cover <laughs> that anymore. Frank Turk has written on it. I think he's done a respectable job. It's it's just one of those. 
crazy topics. But uh, if, uh, anyway, uh, I think the uh, the name of Frank Turk's post that went went up today is the advantaged player. Worth a read. Worth a read. I think uh, it's worth passing along there. But just so you know, I'm not going to actually cover that story. I have no intention of covering that story anytime soon on Fighting for the Faith. Now, if it blows up and becomes like the big story, I might weigh in on it. Or if somebody says something extremely, you know, lucid, concise and profound about it that, you know, kind of nails the topic, I might mention that. But anyway, Phil Johnson talking about pragmatism versus biblical preaching. A great thing to tag team with Walther here on and what we just read on Titus. Uh, Phil Johnson writes, in 2005, a little more than a week after I started blogging, I posted an item about Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. It was literally just a photograph and a transcript of some marginal notes I had jotted down in a flyleaf when I read the book, not anything like a full review. Then almost exactly two years ago, when the blogosphere was abuzz with controversy over the lineup of the 2010 Desiring God Conference, I posted my thoughts on the Piper-Warren connection. Aside from those two posts, I can't think of any other blog posts I've written that deal with Rick Warren and his deleterious influence, which has been considerable. That seems like a major omission on my part. So today I'm going to post something I would have posted in 1997 if I had been blogging then. At the time, Warren's book on the church was required reading for evangelicals. To this day, countless evangelicals uncritically accept the purpose-driven philosophy as received wisdom, and far too many pastors regard the purpose-driven church as virtually canonical. Warren now even has John Piper's seal of approval. I have a different point of view, and I'd like to share it with you. This post, like the first one, is not meant to be a thorough review. It's just some thoughts on preaching that were prompted by the claim Warren makes in his book's subtitle. Rick Warren, the purpose-driven uh, Rick Warren's purpose-driven church is now 18 years old. It is the best-selling book on church ministry philosophy ever. Warren is sensitive about complaints that his overtly pragmatic strategy for church growth leads to doctrinal compromise. So, he subtitled his book, quote, "Growth without compromising your message and mission." <sighs> Yeah, I, I think if there's anything that Fighting for the Faith has demonstrated is is that purpose-driven churches, without fail, compromise the message and the mission of the church. Uh, the methodologies are inconsistent and can, incompatible with the church's message and mission. That's just my two points. But uh, Phil Johnson continues. He says, Warren insists throughout the book that you can follow his seeker-sensitive model of ministry without compromising or watering down your message. And on page 244, he writes, quote, A worship service does not have to be shallow to be seeker-sensitive. The message doesn't have to be compromised. It just needs to be understandable. But then, just a few sentences later, Warren writes, quote, The unchurched do want to hear how the Bible relates to their lives in terms they understand and in a tone that shows you respect and care about them. They are looking for solutions, not a scolding. Notice how quickly Warren undermines his own commitment not to compromise the message. People don't want to be scolded, he tells us, and yet Paul told Timothy that Scripture is profitable for doctrine reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. See 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 16. So how do you preach reproof and correction, not to mention instruction in righteousness without someone feeling scolded? I frankly don't think it's the business of the preacher uh, to trouble himself with whether people feel scolded. The preacher's task is to unfold the meaning of Scripture in a clear, authoritative, persuasive manner. And if people should feel scolded when Scripture rebukes them, as they inevitably will, then that is between them and the Lord. As a matter of fact, as preachers, we are instructed to reprove and rebuke, as well as exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. See 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Doctrine. Doctrinal preaching also takes a hit from Rick Warren. Notice in the quote that I cited above, he says, The unchurched want to hear how the Bible relates to their lives. He makes clear throughout the remainder of the book that he means by this, he's arguing for an emphasis in our preaching that is practical, rather than doctrinal, more emotional, experiential, and relational than didactic. He is dismissively critical of what he calls classroom churches. In Warren's words, classroom churches tend to be left-brain-oriented and cognitively focused. They stress the teaching of Bible content and doctrine, but give little, if any, emphasis to believers' emotional, experiential, and relational development. That's page 340 of The Purpose Driven Church. Now, I, I happen to believe that all doctrine is inherently practical, or at least I would say that there is inherently practical value in understanding and defending sound doctrine. Furthermore, all legitimate religious emotions, experiences, and relationships are a, are a believer's heart's response to biblical truth soundly taught, in other words, doctrine. So I don't quite agree with the dichotomy that is typically made by advocates of seeker-sensitive ministry, but they make this dichotomy nonetheless. They suggest that there is a significant distinction to be made between truth that is doctrinal and truth that is practical. And according to them, any style of ministry that is too didactic, more doctrinal than practical, is inappropriate for seeker-sensitive worship. For example, a defense of the deity of Christ or a systematic presentation of justification by faith might have some academic interest, but doctrinal messages like that aren't deemed sufficiently practical and felt needs oriented for the seeker-sensitive church environment. You are not at all likely to hear such truths dealt with from the purpose-driven pulpit. Newsweek once quoted a seeker-sensitive megachurch pastor who said it like this, People today aren't interested in traditional doctrines like justification, sanctification, and redemption. What people want to hear, uh, this pastor believes, are sermons that address their felt needs, how to improve our relationships with others, how to have success in business, how to find peace of mind and other things more instantly relevant to busy lives than academic doctrines like justification and, ugh, you know, sanctification. Rick Warren is one of the foremost advocates of preaching to people's felt needs. That is the expression he prefers, felt needs. 
that's what he says should determine what we preach. He claims that is how Jesus himself preached, and he even implies that the didactic content of Paul's epistles contrasts favorably with the more practical preaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead of urging preachers to declare the whole counsel of God, Rick Warren expressly encourages preachers to consider what the audience wants to hear and let those felt needs determine what they preach. Naturally, Warren attempts to argue that this approach is in no in no way compromises the message. And on page 228 of his book, he writes, quote, The crowd does not determine whether or not you speak the truth. The truth is not optional. But then in the next breath, he says, Your audience does determine which truths you choose to speak about, and some truths are more relevant than others to unbelievers. If that sounds like double talk, it's because that is precisely what it is. The truth itself is not optional, but some truths are optional in practice because they are not relevant. So much for the whole counsel of the word of God. Now, I realize that most evangelicals who have bought into the purpose-driven philosophy wouldn't dream of attacking the doctrines of justification by faith or the deity of Christ or the absolute authority of Scripture, but they ignore such doctrines rather than risk boring people with you know academic teaching the long term effect is the same as the full scale assault against those doctrines and on this point i got to i got to pause right here phil johnson's right there are two ways two ways to attack sound doctrine one is directly the other is tacitly tacitly mean basically quietly okay so here's the idea these purpose-driven churches will say, oh, we believe all of those doctrines. They're important. They're vital. We just don't teach them. We just ignore them. You'll never hear them from our pulpit. So the result is, is that somebody who goes to those churches over the long haul is never catechized or taught or instructed in sound biblical doctrine. As a result of it, they don't even know what they are let alone that they should believe them. Something to consider there. Phil Johnson then concludes this brilliantly written piece, quote, In short, although Rick Warren claims his brand of pragmatism doesn't compromise doctrine, it absolutely does. From the very start, pragmatic considerations determine what he will preach and how he will preach it. And because pragmatism establishes the value system by which he assesses everything, He's not even capable of appreciating how man-centered and watered down his message has become. He's absolutely right. Great piece, Phil. Great piece. Thank you for taking the time to write that. Very well said. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, i got to warn you, it's going to be a long sermon review. Sometimes sermons just need to be picked apart and this one has so many things wrong with it anyway if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of fighting for the face talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask me my friend on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian we'll be right back unless your righteousness surpasses that of rick warren you cannot be saved you're listening to fighting for the faith Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death 
of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Not sure what to make of this sermon. Oh. good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from Life Community Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Yeah, um, the um, person preaching is the pastor's wife, Harriet. I think Blevins is her last name. Every now and then, I get a, a, a recommendation for a sermon that everything goes wrong in the sermon. I, I mean, just about everything you could possibly imagine. This is one of those sermons. Uh, from start to finish, I think it's almost impossible to track all of the ways in which this thing goes off the rails. And when a sermon goes this far off the rails, it allows for a little bit of teaching, <clears throat> which I will attempt to do to kind of clean things up here. But I don't think there's any way to redeem this sermon. The, uh, the name of the sermon by the way, is Saved From What. This is from their Saved From What sermon series. And to kind of give you an idea of 
theologically what's going on at Life Community Church there in Wilmington, North Carolina. The uh, the the, ma- the the prime pastor there, um, he's um, well, he's a guy who thinks that people like Bill Johnson and Steve Kelly of Wave Church. Um, are the types of men he should emulate and learn how to do ministry from. Um, Bill Johnson, you know, New Apostolic Reformation, total crackpot when it comes to uh, theology. So, that, you know, Pastor Tim Blevins there at uh, Life Community uh, Church uh, it looks up to Bill Johnson. He also looks up to Steve Kelly of Wave Church. So you can tell there's some, there's some theologically, there's some very, very off bizarre, peculiar, weird teachings that uh, Tim Blevins holds that uh, just are not, they can't be squared with Scripture, not with a with a, a correct reading of the text using sound exegesis, good hermeneutical principles. So anyway, without any further ado, here is Pastor Tim Blevins' wife from the Save From What sermon series. And actually, uh, Tim Blevins is going to introduce his wife. So Here's Tim Blevins introducing his wife, who will be doing the preaching um, this uh, the, at you know the, when the Sunday was uh, recorded. Here we go. Well, Life Community Church, this is the third week of our sermon series called "Say From What." Last week, Pastor Mark Tippett did a great job. Before that, Pastor Matt. This morning, one more week on this series. And no, I am not here one more time. I have been blessed to be able to go spend some time with some world-class pastors and ministries. This morning, I am in Wave Church, which is up in Virginia Beach. And so I'm learning from them, growing, and being discipled by other great pastors. This morning, though, I'm just so privileged to be able to welcome your speaker today. Uh, in a way, I'm going to just tell you that it's going to be better than the other two. And I get to say that because it's my own wife, Harriet Blevins. She is going to knock it out of the park for you today. Uh, she's going to speak to you today about part three, save from what? Being saved from our bondages and addictions. I don't think anyone has the ability to communicate this particular area like she does because I believe God has uniquely gifted her to be able to share in this area. So please welcome my wife to the stage. God bless you, church, and I'll see you next week for Easter. God bless. Now, remember those words, God uniquely gifted her to share in this area. (laughs) I will, before the sermon is over, challenge as to whether or not God has uniquely gifted Harriet to teach us anything. Sweet. That was a sweet man. Even though he's been gone now for three weeks, it seems like he's been gone forever. He just keeps coming home and repacking his suitcase and getting back. Yeah, because he went to Redding, California, to Bill Johnson's heretical church at you know called Bethel, and then he turned right around and went to Steve Kelly's church, you know, in order to be taught how to be a pastor by Steve Kelly. I, you know, seriously, um, he, we've got there's some big problems here. Um, you know, you, if you're considering applying a little bit of discernment to the uh, the church that you attend, one of the things nowadays you have to put into the mix is who does your pastor look up to? These are important questions, and uh, sometimes you can figure this out based upon their Twitter, uh, who they're following on Twitter, or the conferences they're attending, and stuff like that. 
So, I mean, if if the people they're looking up to are like Bill Johnson, um, Rick Joyner, Patricia King, uh, Todd Bentley, Steve Kelly, Brian Houston, Ed Young, the guys like that, you know that there's going to be problems. There's going to be extreme problems. Well, let's see how these extreme problems play out here at um, Life Community Church in Wilmington. Another plane and going again. But yeah, so I'm here today <laughs> to talk to you about um, this word, sozo. And I know um, you've had the last two weeks. Um, two weeks ago, Matt was here and he spoke about the word and he introduced this sermon series. And it's basically called Save From What? Because um, when we think about the word salvation that's used in the New Testament, most of us think about that we're saved out of hell into an eternal heaven to be with the Lord forever. And that is what it means. But there's more to it. Last week, Pastor Mark, uh, he spoke about the next part of sozo. Sozo is a Greek word. And it literally means saved, healed, and delivered. Is what the, the literal meaning is. That's kind of the amplified version here. Here, here you got to understand something about words. Is uh, sometimes words have different meanings depending on the context. And so, uh, one of the things that people do when they when they try to do word studies is they'll take all of the definitions of a word and pour all of the definitions into the, a word every time the word appears despite context. Yeah, that you can't do that. The question is what does sozo mean in different grammatical constructions within the Bible? So, just referring to the Greek word and then giving us every single definition attached to it, that's no way of understanding what the Bible teaches. The question is, in this passage, when the Greek word sozo is used, in this context, what does it mean? What does it refer to? What does it say we are being saved from? You don't take the word and pour every meaning into it every time it appears. This is, uh, you'll see this happening a lot in churches that, uh, that, well, reference the Amplified Bible. Because the Amplified Bible has a, has a way of doing this, of you know basically pouring into each instance of a word every meaning. It's it's you, you can't do it that way. It's not that's not how we operate. When I'm speaking here at the microphone at the Pirate Christian Radio Studio, it, it, that's not how it operates in your day to day conversations either. If if we were to understand that each word, all of their meanings are meant every time you say that word, communication would not be possible via language. We would have to find an easier way to communicate. So you don't want to make this error when you're reading Scripture and you're you're trying to understand what it is God the Holy Spirit revealed in His Word. We continue, though. It's so much more than just being saved for eternity. So last week, Pastor Mark spoke on healing and why that... You know, I hate that language, by the way. Salvation is so much more than being saved uh, for eternity. Yeah, the, the reason I have a problem with that is because that language on purpose slaps down eternal salvation. Somehow, yeah, that's kind of not the point. Or, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, but, you know, oh, there's so much more. 
Um, okay, yeah, it's true. We're saved from sin, death, the devil, and stuff like that. But I do recall one of Jesus' apostles writing something to this effect. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. By the way, that's written by the Apostle Paul. You can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, that's verse 19. Let's put a little bit of context uh, around this. Okay, You'll notice, though, that when we look at that sentence, it seems to be that the Apostle Paul is making the exact opposite case that Harriet here is making. Oh, salvation is so much more than eternal salvation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that, but it's, it, we, you know, okay, yeah, okay, but Paul here says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, the context of the argument has to do with the resurrection. Um. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, well, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You'll notice that the emphasis here of talking about our salvation in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead is not on this life, but on the life to come. And there's a reason for that. Throughout the scriptures, our lives here on this earth are described as a mist. You know, our lives here on this earth are short, temporary, and fleeting And many times, for a lot of us, marked with suffering, failure, death, I mean, all kinds, disease, chronic problems, uh, setback. I mean, this life is toil, it's hard, and it's short, and it's mean, right? You see, our hope as Christians, You know, as Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, well, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah, we have hope in this life. Christ gives us, through the power of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit working through his word, you know, victory, if you would, over sin, death, the devil, all of those things. We have that presently, but that doesn't mean that our lives won't be marked with suffering. They, They are. But so here's the deal. When we talk about salvation, so much of the preaching that goes on today has got it all backwards. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, salvation, yeah. It's so much more than just being eternally saved. It's It's got to be so much more than that. Here the Apostle Paul ro- runs the argument the exact opposite. When Scripture runs the exact opposite of what your pastor is saying, you might want to take note of it. And see, one of the things that folks do, okay, is that, you know, they go to church, 
they or they'll attend a bad church, a, a, a church where the Bible is not opened, not and it's not preached from exegetically, hermeneutically, in context. It doesn't point us to Christ. Instead, you get all of these assertions. Okay, well, these assertions have to be true. They're made in church, right? Wrong. And so what happens is they get all these assertions. They get all they, they get all of these doctrines, teachings thrown at them with God attached to them, supposedly. And God is supposedly the one who's, who wants us to believe these things that the pastor's teaching. And then you open up your Bible and you start reading. And here's the deal. You see in scripture that what your pastor is saying isn't there or it's not there the way he said it and here's the deal a lot of times when that happens people rather than going wait a second i don't think my pastor rightly handled this text or i don't think this my pastor's telling me the truth what happens is is that well you just say oh well the bible's complicated or you know, I, you know, I, he knows better than I do. Uh, you know, he went to seminary and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, and, and so the idea is, is that you see the conflict, but rather than escalating it to the point of really digging in to figure out whether or not what you've been taught is true or not, you basically just say, well, th- that person's a man of God. He's the pastor. He knows better. Who am I to say? And and so o- over and over and over again, what I see in people, what I hear from people, what people email me is, is that, you know, they, 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 something wasn't squaring. They know there's something wrong, but they quiet their conscience, push it to the back of their head, and don't act on it. Folks. When you open your Bible, if your Bible is teaching something way different than what your pastor or the pastor's wife is teaching on a Sunday morning, you've got a problem. You are in deep, deep danger, deep danger. What the pastor is supposed to preach is what's in accord with sound doctrine. The Bible admonishes all pastors to teach sound doctrine, to give instruction in it, and to rebuke those who contradict it. God's word is not to be treated like, well, you know, a silly putty, where you can bend it in into all kinds of different shapes and animals and play word games with it. No, 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 no. If what your pastor is preaching cannot be squared with the biblical text in context, then that should be a red flag for you. A red flag that says, wait, wait a second, maybe this guy isn't really a man of God. Maybe he means well, but is deceived and is therefore deceiving. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? So that's the thing. Open up your Bible and compare. If things don't square, there's a problem. So in a, in a situation like this where you've got you've got clear passages that seem to be making, well, the exact opposite point of what the pastor's wife is trying to make, well, then we've got a problem. We've got a big problem. We've got a huge problem. That should be a red flag. That should be a negative mark, something that makes you go, hmm, I might need to dig a little deeper here. We continue. Part of our inheritance as believers. And so today I'm going to be bringing part three. Um, Some people call it spiritual warfare. You can call it 
deliverance. You can call me a demon chaser. I don't care what you call me. But that's what we're going to A demon chaser. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Yeah, that, see, that's another thing. Folks, the demonic realm absolutely exists. No doubt about it. Jesus, you know, if, if one of the things I find really telling when we look in the, in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is the fact that over and again, the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. They know exactly who he is. But humanity is so dead, so broken, so lost in trespasses and sins and uh, and completely blind and in darkness they have no idea that there's Jesus walking among us and it's like well who is he and, you know the demons go ah you're the son of god and everyone else is going who is this guy you know it, oh, maybe he's a prophet you know <laughs> it's like uh. so yeah the demonic realm absolutely exists but here's the deal christians are not 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 supposed to obsess about the demonic realm you know, there's very little written in Scripture about the apostles or the disciples confronting the demonic in the day-to-day in their ministry. They don't focus on it. They don't obsess on it. And this is another way in which somebody can be so distracted by um, a, you know, a sub-point of a sub-point of a sub-point of biblical teaching that uh, that they become useless to the kingdom of God because they're not focusing on teaching the story, proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, and opening up the scripture and focusing us there. The scripture does, in many places, talk about the demonic realm, but you will be surprised ultimately by how little the demonic is mentioned, how little it's talked about. It's there, we need to be aware of it, but we should not be obsessing on it. And, you know, when it when the demonic realm, you know, can you know, we we run into it, which is a rare thing indeed, um, you call your pastor and hopefully you got a pastor who knows what he's doing and and you and you deal with it. You deal with it and you move on and stop thinking about it. I think Satan loves it when people focus on him and try to become experts on him. Christians are not called to be demonologists. They're called to be preachers and proclaimers of Christ and his story, the good news of what he has done for us. And the devil will hate us for it and try to harm us and, and you know cause all kinds of distractions and stuff like that. But he himself is, that's what it's all about. It's about getting you off topic. Demonology, off topic, way off topic. About And we're going to talk about why it is part of your inheritance and my inheritance to pick up that part of Sozo and run with it and let it be part of our lives. I want to pray right now. Oh, man, I want to point something out here. Um, the, the obvious I haven't discussed yet. First Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Okay? We got another problem here. We have a woman teaching in a church. Now, I know some of you are going, man, Chris, you sound like a woman hater. I'm not. Okay? It's plain and simple. Okay? 
Do, do any of you guys ever complain about the fact that, you know, God's never going to let you be a mom? I personally, having seen my wife give birth to three children, I am not complaining. Um, the, the point is this, is that in creation, God set up different roles for men and for women. The pastoral office, the teaching office within the church Women are not qualified to hold that, and that's by God's design. And so when you have a church where a woman preaches on a regular basis <laughs> or preaches at all, like here, we've got a problem. This is a direct violation of clear passages regarding the role of women in the church. And I'll be blunt the the irony here is that that um you know here she's going to talk about the importance of the demonic realm her rebellion against god's word here i'm sorry this is just flat out demonic um this is a this is a subject that you got you kind of got to put your big boy pants on and wade into it a little bit so we're going to we're going to get going father i thank you in jesus name that you're already here I thank you, Lord, for what you've already done in first service. I thank you, Lord, for the anointing that breaks the yoke of the enemy. Lord, we invite you. Your word tells us that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you're there in the midst of them. And so today... For the anointing. Okay, now we're in Patricia King, uh, Bill Johnson land. Lord, I ask that anything of myself would fall by the wayside, that everything of you and me would rise up and would be um, confident and would have the word of the Lord in my mouth. And I thank you for it, Lord. I ask that everyone here, Lord, be covered by the blood of Jesus for safety and health and protection against any scheme of the enemy. And that today, Lord, that your word would hit its mark in Jesus' name. How many of you here have seen the movie Act of Valor? Golly, not many of you. What are y'all doing? Okay, listen, it's a great... Shame you. Shame on you for not seeing Act of Valor. Don't you understand? It's all about Christianity somehow movie i will say it's rated r so before you don't send me emails i'm not gonna read them it's rated r i'm not saying take your kids i'm just saying you got to see the movie if you're a christian because it is the greatest view of what it looks like to be in spiritual warfare it's just i was sitting there i was so struck and taken by what i was watching on the screen these guys the navy seals actually uh no that's not spiritual warfare that's just uh warfare and it's hollywood movie warfare play the parts in the movie and they are about the coolest people alive some of us may think we're cool they are like really cool i mean they are just bad dudes but when they show up into a situation they're always sent into a situation where there's injustice and where there is kind of hopelessness or yeah he, here's the deal um that's a very romanticized view of the navy seals uh the reality is is that the navy seals are sent into situations that politicians decide for them to go into and um last time i checked politicians aren't always exactly the 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 best discerners of injustice in the world or, um, a kidnapping or just where there's a, a criminal situation going on. And many of you have heard me talk about this movie because I've been telling everybody to go see it. But when they show up. Yeah, notice we're not in the Bible here. We're, we're going to lead off with you know, the movie about the Navy SEALs. Sea, air, land, whatever. 
instantly it puts everything into the right. Righteousness, mercy, justice is just ushered in as these guys show up. And everything just like that is put right. Everything. I mean, it's unbelievable. I was sitting there going. So that's a picture of spiritual warfare. You know, we come into a situation of injustice and immediately everything is put right. Oh, boy. Wow. I cannot believe what I'm seeing with my eyes at this movie is actually impacting me like that. But, you know, God spoke to me and he said. Whoa. Okay. So God spoke to her while she was watching the movie Act of Valor. Now, watch what she does here. She's going to tell you what God apparently told her. And then she's going to, well, preach that as if it's the word of God. Okay. Order for something to be set free, there has to be a confrontation. Confrontation has to come for there to be freedom. And so God told you that in order for something to be set free, there has to be confrontation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now let's... Let's exegete this word of the Lord so that we can all hear what God has to say to us today. There to be life. You know, when God spoke, he spoke into the darkness. He confronted the darkness with light. And he said, let there be light. And the darkness confronted the light and it hit its mark. And now we have the light of life. And so confrontation is one of those things that you cannot have change without it. But it's awesome. We are called as Christians to be overcomers. We were never called to be. That's great that you think that. Yes, we are called as Christians to be overcomers. Would you please take me to. And notice I'm at this point going to have to suspend my uh, my revulsion to the fact that she's directly violating God's word by preaching. <clears throat> she should not be. But let's pretend for a second that she could be preaching, right? Okay, uh, that being the case, um, Mrs. Pastor, um, you need to take me to the clear biblical texts. Show me from all of the Bible passages in context this great we-need-to-be-overcomers doctrine clearly exegeted and drawn out of God's Word. Okay, I'm not saying it's not there. I'm not saying it's there. I'm saying that if you're going to make all these assertions and say that this somehow is the equivalent of biblical teaching, that God wants us to know these things, you need to show it to me from his word. Prove it. He's beat down, defeated. I, I don't I, I can't even, I can't even go. We're, we're commissioned officers of the most high God. I want that to just sit Fidel's going, I know what that is. You're a commissioned officer. And not necessarily just here in this church, but I just want to scream at the Christian world, what are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah, funny. I was going to scream right back at you and say, you know, say the same thing. What are you doing? What are you doing? Lady, you're you're in direct defiance of a clear teaching in the word of God by teaching uh, on a Sunday morning and preaching. And number two, I mean, what are you doing? Is preaching some so-called vision or word of the Lord you received it directly in your heart as if it, it measures up to the Bible? Really? What are you doing? What is happening? I actually sat with the police chief 
about three weeks ago, getting the lowdown on what all was going on in Wilmington and praying. He actually, he actually looked across the table at me and said, where are the Christians? Where are they? What are y'all doing? They're too busy at, at their, uh, their big box churches, uh, drinking Starbucks and being taught life tips. You know, important things like, you know, how to have better sex and well-behaved children and things like that. They're too busy focusing on themselves, narcissistically. And you know what? I didn't have a real good answer for him. I wish I did, but I didn't. But I went home and started sharpening my sword. And I said, I tell you what, if we're going to be here, it's going to make a difference that we're here. We're not just going to have church on Sunday morning and carry our Bibles in and go to Bible study and put a bumper sticker on our car anymore. No more. Okay. Okay, I'm getting off of... Yeah, having a real Bible study might actually be a big improvement because I don't think we're going to get that in this <clears throat> sermon. Okay. Hebrews 11 is this chapter in the Bible about these mighty men and women of God. They are our heroes in the faith. And I think it's on the screen. And it actually says, what more shall I say? For time will, will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets, who by faith, now I want you to listen what they did. They conquered kingdoms. That's massive. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword and from weakness they were made strong. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to flight. Anything that comes against the children. Whoa, 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 whoa. He, you kind of missed the important stuff here. It doesn't end there. You know, it, you know, that's the thing. This is a passage out of context. And when you ignore what immediately precedes it and what immediately follows after it, um, you kind of miss the point here because it goes on to say now let me let me read here um okay so i'll start at verse 34 they quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight oh yeah women received back their dead by resurrection some were wait a second hang on some were tortured what refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now immediately you should sit there and go, wait a second, when I put this passage back into its fuller context, um, it's not going to make the point that she's making. This is a clear sign that you're in a church that, well... Teaches deception, false doctrine, false teaching, not what God's word says. But let's put it into its fuller context here. Okay, so the, 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 what's going on in Hebrews 11? I just read the tail end of it, and here she's emphasizing the conquering part, but she kind of left out, and this is a big omission, all of the mocking, flogging, beatings, being stoned, killed by wild beasts, that stuff. 
Okay, so what's going on here in Hebrews 11? Because the three primary rules for sound biblical understanding, if you would, are context, context, and context. So much of bad teaching that goes on in churches clears up immediately like this, just like that. If all you do is you take the verses that they're, they're, they're teaching on and put some context around them and ask a simple question. When I put this passage back in context, is it teaching what this person, in this case this woman, is teaching, or is it making a different point? If it's making a different point when you put it back in context, there is a problem. A big problem, okay? Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. For by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Yeah, let me read that again. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I'm going to cross-reference this passage. By faith, okay, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That should key you in as to what's going on here. And let me let me give you a cross-reference to this that I think will be helpful, okay? When we talk about the righteousness that comes by faith, this is a passage that teaches the imputed righteousness of Christ. It talks about our salvation, that there's a great exchange that takes place on the cross, and there's a great exchange that takes place when we are brought to repentance and faith in Christ. And here's how that exchange works. Remember it says in Scripture that God laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment or chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. Or you can think about the great passages in in Corinthians where it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, right? Things like that, okay? Now, so we understand, uh, we're familiar with constantly this idea that our sins are laid on Christ, But see, over and again, the scriptures reference a righteousness that is from God. That's Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness. That's what's exchanged. Our sin goes on him. His perfect, sinless righteousness goes on us. Over and again, that's what's referred to 
is this righteousness of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1, let me just cross-reference this, verses 16, uh, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, the diakasune uh, uh, theu, this is the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that la- the tail end of that, the righteous shall live by faith, That that's only okay. Okay, it, it, I think a clearer way to say this, and the Greek allows you to, to, to work the phrases, the, the, the phrases in such a way that you can make this a little bit clearer. It says, the righteous shall live by faith. What does this mean? Okay, let me, let me rework the sentence just a little bit using the Greek. Those who are declared righteous by faith shall live. Those or the one who is righteous by faith shall live. See, that's what's going on there in Hebrews 11. The righteousness of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And this chapter shows that Old Testament guys, they were saved by grace through faith. They understood the righteousness of God. They were given the righteousness of God as a gift from God. For those who are righteous by faith shall live. That's the kicker here. So Hebrews 11 isn't all about going and conquering kingdoms and stuff like that because the tail end of the chapter makes it clear that by faith, not only do people conquer kingdoms, they went to horrible, horrific, bloody, gory, despicable, miserable deaths. Right? Right. So this isn't about being overcomers. Not temporally. This is about salvation by faith. Because we have the righteousness of God imputed to us, given to us as a gift for free. And this is truly good news. Because those who are in Christ are not saved by their works. They are saved purely on account of what Jesus Christ has done for them, his righteousness imputed to them. The gavel falls down and the verdict is declared not guilty. This is very good news because each and every one of us, you and me included, all know we are guilty. But see, our sin and our guilt has all been carried and put upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus became a curse for us because it says in Scripture that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He took the curse upon himself so that he could redeem us, purchase us, propitiate the wrath of God. We are bought with the very blood of God himself. This is all good news. And see, that's what this is. This passage is all about in Hebrews 11. But <clears throat> Mrs. Pastor here um, is missing the whole point. Why? Well, because she's off chasing demons. The Most High God is considered a foreign army. 
it's time to put them to flight. That's what we're going to talk about today. First, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. And we're going to talk about, you know, battles. We're going to talk about battles this whole entire time. But the first battle was not here on earth. We think that it was with Jesus here on earth. But Isaiah 14, 12 tells us that the battle initially began in heaven. And it began when Lucifer decided to, you know, flex his guns and say, I want some power. So, and we know what was happened at that point. He lost his place in heaven and was cast out. The next battle scene we see is in the book of Genesis. And that's where Satan tempted Adam. And Adam succumbed. He, he came under the temptation in the garden. And what he actually did was he lost dominion for the race of man at that point. He, he lost dominion. Okay, now we're into the realm of New Apostolic Reformation dominionism here. Now we've got a problem. When sin entered. But the next battle scene we get carried to is the one at the cross. And that place is where victory was regained for the Christians. In that place, the enemy was made a public spectacle for all to see. At that time, in that place, the battle between Satan and Jesus is over. There is no more battle. That thing was done and finished. There is no more battle. So put that part to rest. You know, Jesus is still fighting Satan. No, he's not. He did that one time, and the Bible said it was perfect. Perfect. The word tells. Yeah, that's great. Why don't you show us those passages? The job of a preacher is to teach and preach and proclaim the word of God. You're not doing that. You're just making all these assertions. Yes, in John, 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I don't know if many of you have really stopped and thought about that because that really took that scripture, that sentence. I've had to chew on that a long time because in my little southern church-going mind, I have thought that Jesus came for a lot of other reasons. But the Bible says he came to destroy the works of the devil. So we got to talk about that. We can't just go, we can't talk about that. That's just messy and, you know, makes me uncomfortable. We can't do that. We got to talk about it. So that's. So let's talk about it. Do you think it's a work of the devil when a woman teaches and preaches in church? I mean, flat out. I mean, Scripture flat out in no uncertain terms unambiguously forbids this. So is that the work of the devil? reason he came. So now what's happened is there is still a battle, but the battle belongs to the church. It's our responsibility as the church, as the body of the Most High God, as the bride of Christ, what he is sending his beloved son back to get. It's our responsibility to pick up the dominion that's been paid for and given to us and walk in it. It is now ours. Again, notice the assertions being made here. By the way, this uh, passage she's referring to about Jesus coming to destroy the works of the devil, let's put that in context too. Remember, context, context, context. She's not taking the time to actually do a clear, coherent biblical teaching. Let's clean this up and see what's going on in this passage. First John chapter 3. Okay, now, First John is a book of the scriptures that is not always easy to understand. And the reason why is because you must, must, must keep the full context of the book in your mind as you're working through the last part of it. 
So what happens is is that if you read the book, uh, the epistle of First John, only focusing on the latter chapters and ignore or forget what's written in the first chapter and early part of the second chapter, you can create a theology of works righteousness like you wouldn't believe. Okay, so let's put this back into its fuller context. First John chapter 1, I'll start at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, while we lie and, and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So you see what's going on there. Um, you know, the, the gospel's clearly here, okay? So it's saying, if we say we have no sin, we lie, okay? If we confess our sins, he forgives my little children, First John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see? Okay, so he's writing these things so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So you, this has to be in your mind. These verses must be in your mind, and they frame and limit how to understand what's going to be written in this next portion. First John chapter 3. So everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on, continues to make a practice of sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, make a practice of it, because he's been born of God. You get it? So when we put this verse that she just rips out of context and throws out into the sermon, that apparently, um, you know, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, well, in context... What's it talking about here? The works of the devil are sin and lawlessness. Now I come back to my question. I'll reframe it, in fact. Considering the fact that God's word clearly says that a woman is not to teach in church, not to ha exercise authority over a man, what are we witnessing there as we're listening to Harriet preach? She's sinning. And this is lawlessness. This is false doctrine. What we're hearing here is an actual work of the devil. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic at this point. Just using the just sane biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, and understanding what God's word says. 
Harriet preaching, this is sin and lawlessness. This is a work of the devil that we're hearing from her. And not only that, she is mangling God's word, which, oddly enough, I think is to be expected. I have yet, I have yet to hear a woman preacher rightly handle God's word. Not this, um, well, first of all, the word kingdom, which I've talked about a lot. When y'all hear me talk, I usually talk about this word kingdom because it's sort of arrested my heart in the last year or so. But this word kingdom means literally the king's domain. So when we're saying, you know, our, you know, we, we pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's huge. Would the king's domain come to my earth? That's big. That's like massive. This is not some like sweet little passive affair. And God's been showing me more and more lately. This is truly warfare. It is warfare. We are in a battle whether you like it or not. We're in a battle. War is messy. Now, I agree. We're in a battle. The problem is, is because you're mishandling God's word and you're in direct rebellion to a clear teaching of the word of God, I'm not convinced that you're fighting on the side of Christ. Uncomfortable a lot of the time. So this is warfare. Um, the title of my sermon is taking out the trash. And um, <laughs> it's because it's sort of like, how many of you have the job in your house to take out the trash? Yeah, well... It's not fun. It's not a pretty situation, but it's necessary. That's how spiritual warfare is. That's how fighting in the kingdom is. It's not always pretty. It's not always like, sign me up. Please let me get to do that. It's not necessarily like that, but it is necessary if we're going to become and have what God says that we can have. So um, my son, Eli, uh, he likes to play soccer. And we throughout high school, we've always dubbed him the trash man. Because he just kind of hovers around the goal. He's not like the biggest person, so he kind of has to get him. He has to kind of man up a little bit. He has to play smarter sometimes. So he gets up by the goal, and we call him the trash man because he cleans up all the, like, you know, the shots that don't go in. It's not always pretty for him, but you know what? He's putting points on the board. Points on the board. They go in, and we're like, ooh, it was kind of ugly, but he scored. I mean, so... He's a trash man. We always call him the trash man. He's clean up. I mean, he has a lot of legitimate goals too, but it's just kind of funny because he always kind of hovers around the goal, and when it comes by, he's like, somebody's got to put it in the goal. Might as well be me. So he's the trash man at our house. Okay, so what are we supposed to do about all this? Um, Bill Johnson from Bethel Church, he has this statement. It's, see, immediately, you know there's a big problem here. Somebody who quotes Bill Johnson positively as if he has something to offer the church is somebody who has no clue what the Bible teaches, period. He says, we only look at the enemy long enough to pull the trigger. That's it. We don't have to stay there. We don't have to camp out there, but we have to look at him long enough to pull the trigger. I love pulling triggers. It's like one of my most favorite things to do. In October, when I spoke, um, I preached back in October one day when Tim wasn't, he was in Africa, and we talked about the three realms. I was speaking about the open heaven, and I spoke about that the first realm that we live in is the realm of the natural, what we see, your chair you're sitting in, your car you drove here, your clothes, you, your physical body, all that's in the first realm. 
In the second realm is the next place, which is where there's a lot of supernatural activity. That's where angels and demons hang out. Yeah, that's great. Um, your job is, it's not even your, your job, but if you were really a pastor, your job would be to preach the word. You're just making all of these assertions. Why don't you show us from the Bible what the Bible says in context? That's where there's a lot. And every once in a while, it kind of crashes into our earthly realm. You know, you feel it, you see it. It's there. Yeah, I'm not familiar with any passages that talk about that realm crashing into our realm. I mean, this sounds like you, you got your theology from the television show Supernatural, which is miserable theology in that show. <sighs> Ignore it. So, you know, that's always there. But then the next realm is the realm of the open heaven. It's the third realm. And that's the realm we're supposed to live from. Because in that place is rest and there's peace and there's a um, steadiness to us, even though we're busy and even though we're being very productive, establishing the king's domain, there's total rest there. That's where we're supposed to live from. But every now and again, we got to go into realm two and we got to do something about the enemy. We got to jack him up and get him out of our situation. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about how we're going to warfare heaven into our earthly realm. A lot of times I look at it. How we're going to wealth, uh, warfare heaven into the earthly realm. Oh, boy. Uh, again, I, this even sounds like she is just not even cognizant of what the Bible teaches regarding these things at all. Not necessarily any of you, but I look at Christians just in my world. I look at Christians and I think... They are so sad. They're negative. They have very little emotional control. Many of them. Yes, I, I'm sure that's what she'll say about me. What a negative guy. I mean, yeah, see, yeah, you're right. I'm really negative. I'm really down on false teaching. I'm really down on, well, God's word being ignored or twisted or mangled. I'm really negative about that. It's just one of the problems I have. Are you medicated? Can't sleep? Just very little victory. It's about this much. And they're just hanging on and hanging on. And, and you know what? They think that they're hanging on makes them more holy. But it doesn't. All it says is you're not Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know anybody who thinks that by hanging on, they're holy. I, I've never met a person like that. Appropriating the price that's already been paid for you. Because the price was already paid, remember, at the cross. So we're supposed to be walking in that. This lukewarmness that has settled over many people's lives, and I'm talking about Christians, I'm going to call it passivity. Really? Yeah, I think that's probably the right, right way of putting it. I would consider the fact that you were preaching, Harriet, as a sign of lukewarmness, in fact, probably flat-out cold rebellion against God, and it's just strange that the folks there in that church are passively sitting and tolerating it. It's just this passivity that sort of settles over us. And it, it's usually there because of a few reasons. Sometimes it's disappointments. Sometimes we've had our hopes in something and, and we were disappointed or in someone and we were greatly disappointed by it. Sometimes they're there because of unforgiveness or hurts or wounds, inner wounds inside of us that never got dealt with, that never got put under the blood. For whatever reason, they, they just never got dealt with. And so we just kind of think, you know, what's the, what's the use? I mean, well, I've prayed about that before. Yeah, I kind of think, what on earth are you talking about? 
I never had any breakthrough in that. What's the use? I'm going to heaven, and then we start singing in the sweet by and by, someday over yonder, blah, 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 you know. We start singing about all that because that's all we Yeah, blah, 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 blah. I'm hearing a lot of that in the sermon, blah, 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 blah. We think that's good, and we think that's what our heritage is. That is not what our heritage is. That's not it. That's not the inheritance that he has died to give us. So whatever in your life makes you spiritually passive, it will also make you spiritually vulnerable. So I want you to repeat. Yeah, wow. You, you got any passages from the Bible that say that? Can you give me, like, you know, something from, you know, like, the Torah, uh, you know, the history, the prophets, you know, the uh, Gospels, any of the epistles? You got any Bible passages where God has clearly said that? I mean, here we got another assertion on your part. But I can't think of a passage that says that. I mean, maybe I've just forgotten. Can you show me from the Bible where it says that? For that, whatever makes you passive is going to give you a huge vulnerability to the wiles of the devil in your life, and he's just waiting. Yeah, it sounds serious and all, but again, I just I'm not familiar with any of those passages. Just looking for an opportunity. At the end of the service today, I'm going to do a corporate deliverance action. Oh, uh, oh, uh, oh. Uh, uh, a what? So I want all of you to begin to pray now. I want you, as you are sitting under the influence of my words and the Holy Spirit, I want you to begin saying, God, what are you saying to me? Because run. We're going to go after today's three major spirits that affect everyone's life at some time. Rejection. The, the spirit of rejection. That's a, that's a spirit? I had no idea. Forgiveness and fear. Unforgiveness and fear. Okay. So those are apparently demons. I had no idea. They are huge paralyzers to the body of Christ. And today, we're going to put them in their rightful place all together. Yeah, it's going to be a smackdown. Yeah, rejection is going to be rejected. Can you imagine how powerful that'll be? We're going to put them in their rightful place. The enemy has a lot of us under house arrest. I want you all to say house arrest. You got a Bible passage that says the enemy has us under house arrest. He does. The enemy has a lot of us under house arrest. Gasp. Sounds terrible. So sad. I watched this show called White um, Collar, and I like it. It's on USA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, it, 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 again, it probably teaches amazing biblical principles, I'm sure, all by accident. Or cable, TV, whatever. It's about this dude named Neil Caffrey, and he is so slick and cool. He's this thief that the, he was put in federal prison, but they went, the FBI went and got him. And they said, you're, gonna, you're so smart, you're going to work for us. So they make him work for them, and he tries to find the bad guys all the time. But he always has this little, this little band around his ankle because he's under house arrest all the time. And so they track him. You know, they can see where, where is Neil? What's he, you know, and they're always like, what's he doing? What's he doing over there? He's not supposed to be. And they can see where he is all the time on their computers. And many of us live like that. We live like we got this thing on us, like the enemy, he only lets us go so far and then we can't go anywhere. What are we doing? I don't even know what you're talking about. What are we doing? I mean, it really is like we're under house arrest. Like we just go, oh, I forgot. I forgot. I can't go that far away from him because he owns part of me. What in the world are we doing? So Yeah, again, I just come back to, you know, based on what the Bible clearly says about women teaching, what in the world are you doing? 
I was thinking about that as I was thinking about how passivity is like this drug. And it like clouds our discernment. It just sort of hovers over us and it sort of settles in. But the worst part about passivity, the worst part is that it takes away every drop of our courage. It sucks it right out of us. We don't even have a clue what we can stand boldly before the throne of grace and even ask for or even claim. So we don't have any courage left in us because the drug of passivity has settled over us and we forgot that we were created to be warriors. We forgot it. But God says it's time to remember. You know, Jesus could and did live with human failure. That did not seem to rock his world a little bit. But when he was confronted with an evil spirit, he had no neutral ground. He went after that thing and he... Yeah, I I seem to recall Jesus going after human failure. That's called sin. Pretty directly by dying for it on the cross. That seems like Jesus went right after that whole human failure thing. It rocked his world seriously. I mean, he was beaten, scourged had a crown of thorns pressed into his head, nails driven into his hands and feet. Yeah, he yeah. It rocked his world all right. Destroyed it every single time. Remember 1 John 3:8. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's the reason he came. Some for some reason he could look at humans and he could sympathize with us in our failures and our weaknesses. But when it Yeah, he didn't sympathize with us in that sense. He understood our weakness because he was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. There's a passage of scripture that actually says that. But remember, he died for our sins to propitiate the wrath of God. Right? Came to evil spirits. He wasn't gonna have any of that because he knew in God's army There's not going to be any room for passive people. There's no room for passivity. And what I'm hoping this morning to do is to stir up and stimulate the gift within all of us that wants to empower us to re-enter some of these battles in our life, that we'll have zeal, that we'll have divine wisdom, that we carry that into these battles in our life, and we can see that we we are overcomers because of what he did. Not because we're anything special, because of what he did. Um, I like to run. And I know it's not really good for you. I, I get it. So don't even don't write emails about that either. I don't want to hear it. But I, I've tried to become a walker. I have tried. I mean, I have bought walking shoes. I, I mean, I have tried so hard. I'm like, I really want to be a walker. Is running a sin? I, I, didn't, I had no idea that running was bad for you. Who, who knew? But then again, I don't do any of that because walkers are healthier, their joints, their backs, their hips, their knees, everything is just so much healthier for them. I can't. I will get out there and I walk a little ways and before you know it, I'm running. It's like I'm carried under compulsion. Maybe it's a spirit of running and you need to stop that, you know. You need to war against it. I, I have no idea, you know. Run. It's the strangest thing and I know that if you're not a runner, you totally don't get it. But this week I was looking at that word compelled. And that word, that word compelled, we were, me and Mark and Avella and Tim were at this conference and they were talking about how it literally means to imprison something. It, it's like binding you with cords to something. And I want to stir up a compulsion in you to war again in the right way for the right reason.
I want to stir up the gift of faith that causes you to stand up and go, I don't have to put up with that. That is not the king's children's bread. I don't have to eat that anymore. So we know that um, Romans 8.37, which is one of my favorite scriptures, says that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And that word conquer, that is a word. I mean, that's like... That's like a guy's word. I mean, it's a word. It's Yeah, it's masculine all the way, man. you got to love that word, conquer. Yeah. Conquer. It's like there is no question about, did you win? I mean, if you've conquered something, it's pretty, yeah, yes, yeah, I did, I won. I mean, it's, you know, seriously, it's a major word. And that, it, that scripture, I love that. We are, we are more than conquerors. We're more than that. I just want to stir that up in you today. I want to look again at Hebrews 11. You want to stir that up in me, right? Yeah, okay. Stir. Verse 34. From weakness. I don't care what your weakness is. Everybody look up here at me. I don't care what your weakness is. I don't care who your weakness is. I don't care what it is. From weakness... They were made strong, and they became mighty in war. Mighty. I want to be mighty. I want to be like that. Yeah, and then verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Let's, let's do it. Let's rock on. Let's go to war. Um, we talk about swords a lot around here. You know, I mean, we do. I don't know why. It's just part of the deal around here all the time. We're talking about warfare. And I got this sword. Oh, no. (laughs) It's a Scottish William Wallace type's broadsword. Oh, no. Actually bought me a replica of William Wallace's sword. And I love this sword. I actually pull it out a lot. There he is. I wonder if William Wallace really looked like that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool if he really looked like Mel Gibson? <laughs> It'd be so awesome. That's what I that's, that's what I think he looks like. That's what I think he looks like. Yeah, I can name a sin you need to repent of and be forgiven of right now. But you know, um, during his time, William Wallace, when he was alive and when he was warring for his Scotsman, for his country, everybody questioned his warfare tactics. Just like all of religion wants to question ours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here, it's funny. Isn't that funny? All of religion wants to question your warfare tactics. Uh, Harriet, here's the problem. Um, y- you might want to listen to some of these folks that you're just brushing aside as being religious because you know your warfare tactics are based upon a misreading and a mishandling, a twisting of God's word, and you're following people who are dubious at best uh, when it comes to their ability to rightly teach and handle God's word. And the fact that you're even preaching right now, see, that's the thing is, is that biblical Christians at this point find themselves well at war with you because of what you're doing, the false teaching that you're teaching and your rebellion against the clear teaching of the word of God. You can just brush them off as being religious, but they have biblical reasons why they're trying to get your attention and say, you're going the wrong way. You're teaching false doctrine. You're endangering yourself and the people whom you're teaching. 
isn't Jesus already died and done all that? Why do we have to get all stirred up? Why do we got to do all that? Let's not talk about the devil because he might get all, you know. <laughs> I am saying to you, we got to do it because it's our mandate. It's what we've been commissioned. Great. Show us from the clear teachings what the mandate is. I thought the mandate was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching all that he's commanded us. I thought that was the mandate. Officer. Isn't that how we do warfare? You understand what I'm saying? To do. It's our mandate. So that's the reason. Yeah, no, uh, what you couldn't see there is she was holding that William Wallace sword high and lifted up, you know, as far as the mandate is concerned. Hey. He, um, he actually was very, William Wallace again, he was very... Um, just want to point out that William Wallace is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. He's actually not a biblical character. He's not in the line of David or of the Messiah. Just want to let you all know that. Tactical and strategic, and he used the lay of the land to his advantage. Most people during that time when they entered into warfare, they, um, they used strength. Their strength was usually in their numbers, or they entered into this kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to call it sissy combat. It's like... Um, Obviously, she's an expert on ancient warfare tactics. Nightly combat, you know. We, we got all these rules of engagement. Not him, man. He said, I tell you what. I got to win. We got to get some freedom going up in this country. And I've got to win. And I don't have as many people as the British have. So I'm going to have to kick some booty with less people and some smarts about me. And so that is the exact same way God says, I got a strategy for you. I got a strategy for you to be able to warfare. Uh, in the year 2000. So God told William Wallace he has a strategy for him to warfare so that he can kick British booty. Got it. Okay. I went to Scotland and I laid in that field where he wielded that sword. Okay, this is now getting weird. She's getting teary-eyed because she laid in the field where William Wallace wielded his sword. Oh, boy. And I cried my heart out that day. And I said, God, I want my life to count for something like that. Then sit down and admonish your husband to preach the word correctly and proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and support him in his right handling and correct teaching of God's word and proclamation of the biblical gospel. I want to live for something greater than myself. I want to war for your kingdom like he warred for his. I want that. And nothing less will do. So I feel this. T I want, I want. She's preaching about herself. She's not really preaching about Christ at all. Uh, to and her own delusions about spiritual warfare. Wallace. He uh, fought a war in 1297 on the bridge of, on Sterling Bridge, and I'm, I've been on that bridge. And he won, and he defeated the British. And he I thought the original Sterling Bridge isn't still standing. I, I may be wrong on that. Established independence for his country. And he is still proclaimed today as the man that holds the sword for the Scots. 
about eight years later or so, he was captured and he was defeated. He was hanged. He was drawn and quartered and he was charged with high treason because. Yeah, I saw the movie. I, I'm fully aware, yes. What he did for his country. But you know what? He lived as a free man. And he charged all of his countrymen. He said, what are you going to do with your freedom? What are you going to do with it? It's the same question today Jesus is saying. I, Jesus was, was, he wasn't hanged, drawn, and quartered. It was worse. He was crucified. He said, what are you going to do with the freedom? I so... You know, funny enough, the, the, <clears throat> you could actually make a biblical point here. Um, Galatians says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not the freedom that William Wallace was talking about. Freedom from sin, death, the devil. And even in, in the context of the book of Galatians, freedom from the, the taskmaster of the law now set free in Christ to love and serve our neighbor. Right? So it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin, Scripture teaches. Sin is lawlessness. I mean, there's, there, I mean, there's a theme here you could tease out biblically in context and make a valid, sound, doctrinal point here. But, well, she's not doing that. Lovingly died to give you. What are you going to do with it? There's a quote by Aristotle that I love. Now we get Aristotle, too. Um, got any Jesus quotes? About courage. And courage is the oldest analyzed virtue in the world that anyone can ever do a history research on. And Aristotle says that courage lies perfectly between recklessness and fear. Wow, yeah, that's deep. Um, not biblical, but wow, yeah, that's deep. Because you got to be reckless sometimes to head into this kind of warfare. You, what kind of warfare again is it? I mean, you just quoted Hebrews 11 totally out of context. Um, what, what kind of warfare are we going into again exactly? And sometimes when you get in the middle of it and you're looking at it, sometimes you got to do it afraid. Sometimes there is. And she's picked up the sword again. Fear. But you do it anyway. Sometimes you war anyway. You push through the fear. You do it afraid. You know, no one would ever pick up a sword like this and head into battle. Can you all imagine if I, like, headed out here, you know, on a horse? And, um, yeah, and I was going to, you know, go into battle, like, go down Oleander and ride it and, like, fight something. But, I mean, how stupid would that be? Because I can't even hardly pick it up, you know. It's a, it's a prophetic tool to me that I look at and use and pray over. But listen. Yeah, you know, funny enough, the, the picture of you in a ancient, you know, 13th century Scottish battle with the British um, with a broadsword, well, that's kind of a silly picture. Um, same thing, though, about, you know, you as a woman preaching. It, the mismatch is pretty much identical. Wallace. Can you imagine how much diligent practice he had with his sword in his hand? I bet it felt unnatural for him at times to not have his sword in his hand. 
because he was so used to being with it. So now we're making an illustration based on what you imagine about William Wallace. Yeah, okay. And it being almost like an extension of him. Um, he felt at home with it. If you watch the movie, it's pretty amazing how they wield those swords. I don't know what they were made of. If they're like plastic. I don't know what they were, but dang. I mean, they were like, they were amazing. Okay, the next part of warfare I want to talk about is another something that the Bible talks about. It talks about swords, and then it talks about... Yeah, the Bible talks about swords. Yeah, they're mentioned all over the place in the Bible, Old Testament. There's even a... The Bible itself, the Word of God, is likened to the sword of the Spirit. You know, you could make that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, the Bible talks about swords, all kinds of swords, you know. Bows and arrows. So now we're going to switch over to bows and arrows. Okay, yeah, with this warfare sermon. So. Actually says they're mighty in the hands of a warrior. So my next character, y'all are going to think all I do is watch war movies, but it's not true. I really like Pride and Prejudice. I read Jane Austen every year. So Yeah, I, I was concerned there. Uh, you, you weren't being girly enough for me until you mentioned those movies. Serious? There is this girly side to me, but but there's this other movie. Oh, that's Legolas, the beautiful. Oh, no. Now, <laughs> Legolas, yeah. and Okay, from the uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, tell us more. Legolas in Lord of the Rings. And he has this bow and arrow, and I'm going to tell you what, he is the dude with the bow and arrow. I don't know if you've ever, how many of you have ever seen Lord of the Rings? Yeah, he's the elf dude, all right. Yeah, he's the one that, he's the elf dude that makes all the girls' hearts go pitter-patter, yeah. He's my favorite character, because he's just like, shoo, shoo. I mean, and they are perfect. They hit their mark every single time. That's right, you are aware that uh, he, that would be Hollywood-enhanced arrowage going on there, yeah. He was an elfin prince, and his estimated age is, wait for it, 2,931 years old. He's looking good. Isn't he looking good? That's Orlando Bloom playing the part. But these elves that Tolkien created, they were amazing. And, and I believe that he created them to be a picture and kind of a mirror essence of angels. Yeah, actually, there's uh, articles about that, yes, yes. They, were, they had agility and grace. They had quick reflexes and very heightened senses about them. And there's this one part where Legolas is walking on the snow and he doesn't even sink into it. He, like, stays right on the top of it. Woo, yeah. Uh, some biblical stuff there going on, I'm sure. It's the coolest thing ever. Tolkien says of this particular character that he created, he was fair of face beyond the measure of mere man. And he has bright elfin eyes with long, slender hand. So bow, and he is truly, Orlando Bloom in real life is an archer. Bows and arrows are spoken of as tools of warfare all the way through the Bible. And Tolkien knew that. That's why he pulled this particular part out. Yeah, you know, I think about the flaming darts of the evil one, you know, from the book of Ephesians. Yeah, bows and arrows are talked about, yeah, all throughout Scripture, yeah. Yeah. Legolas could also handle a sword, too. This yeah, I'm glad about that. I mean, that helps me in my spiritual warfare deeply. Scripture that I like to tie this to is Psalm 18. It's verses 31 through 34, and it says, For who is God but the Lord? 
And who is a rock except our God, the God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless? He makes my feet like hinds feet, and he sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Bows and arrows are really, really necessary in spiritual warfare because they represent things. The bow is representative of um, our, sorry, the Holy Spirit. The arrows are representative of our prayers. Uh, really? Okay, so now we're allegorizing a poetic passage. Psalm 18. Now, let's read it in context. It's a great psalm, by the way. Um, let's find out what's going on here. Uh, context, context, context. Psalm 18, verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord, Yahweh, is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Yeah, it's, boy, right off the bat here, who's the one saving us from our enemies? It's the Lord, Yahweh, God. This is a psalm about him. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of, of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare, at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Interesting. Psalm 18 has the primary warrior being the Lord. And our enemies being sin, death, the devil. Him being riled up because our prayers go to him. We are helpless, O Lord. We are being attacked. Help us. And here God rides forth to set us free. He goes to war in anger against our enemies, right? He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Wow. Huh. 
interesting. She's just totally reading this passage out of context. Here she's talking about, oh, let's take a look at this verses 34 and whatever, you know. <sighs> Seriously. I mean, this is definitely a warfare passage, a, a warfare psalm, if you would. But the one waging war is God, is Christ. And he's waging war to set us free from our enemies because we are powerless against them. They are too mighty for us. And Christ, our great God and Savior, Deliverer and King, comes out of his temple, off of his throne, riding on a cherub to set us free from our enemies. Ah, great passage. Mm, boy, we could talk about that one all day long. But see, you see, again, what's what's happened here? She's taking all of these passages out of context, and we're not getting a clear teaching about who Christ is, what he's done for us, and how that psalm that she references talks about how God wages war for us because our enemies are too mighty for us. That's what the cross is all about. Ay. And the anointing is what carries them deep into enemy territory where they hit their mark. And bows and arrows... Yeah, I don't know what she's talking about. ...only effective if they have three qualities to them or uses about them. They have to have distance, they have to have penetration, and they have to have accuracy. And when they do, they hit their mark every time. They're a deadly, lethal force that hits their mark over and over. Second Kings talks about us being the Lord's arrows of victory. And so it talks about that. You know, I don't know um, what battle. Yeah, Second Kings is kind of big. It's a kind of a big book. You, you got a chapter and verse that says that? But you're facing. But I know that the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is there for you. I know that he is with you. He is the same one who rescued you from the powers of darkness. Yeah. He is the same one yeah. that comes now to anoint you with oil. Oh, boy. And to anoint you with war, a spirit of war. Oh, great. No. Now we're getting crazy. To deliver you from all the hand of the enemy. Jesus literally means Savior, Healer, Deliverer. So today, I want you to grab on to the aspect that he is your deliverer. He is your mighty, mighty weapon in your hand. Jeremiah says he is our battle axe. He is, he is something we can pick up and trust in, and we can claim all that he has done for us. There's a um, scripture in Psalm 18. Back to that. I'm going to go back a few verses to verse 17. Please do. Yeah, I can't wait to see what you do with this, because that's one of the verses I just read. And it says, he delivered me from my strong enemy, yeah. from those who hated me. Yeah. They were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delights in me. Yes, right. Who do you think this is about? Some of you look at me. Some of you live in territories about that big. What? You've hemmed yourself in 
to the smallest possible place to live. You just squirm around in there and try to get by and do the best you can. And what? Your territory's just this little slither of, and you. Die. I'm just, I'm just so content right here. I just don't ever really. I'm just good. I'm just sitting in the blessings of God. He has a broad place for us. And what does that mean exactly? Broad, because he delights in us. It should be a big, wide, open, spacious place that we live in the spirit realm. Uh, notice that in the you know <clears throat> the psalm that you were reading, he put us in there, not we rescued ourselves. You get what I'm talking about here? Uh, you're 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 kind of mixing metaphors and kind of messing up the whole point of the psalm there. Not this little hemmed in thing. I want the worship team to come on up. Uh oh. Now normally I don't play through someone's prayer time, but we've got to play this today because you got to hear what happens during the prayer time because it's going to switch into deliverance time. It, you know, you remember those things that are after us that she was talking about those spirits that she was going to deliver us from that takes place during the prayer time so we've got to listen to it while they're coming um i'm going to be reading through some scriptures you're not going to be able to write these scriptures now because i'm going to go through them a little bit quickly but you can jot down i'm going to give you the reference of where they all are and i want you to listen these are some of the scriptures that i use whenever i'm trying to remind myself that I'm a warrior. Because you know what? Some days I just don't feel like a warrior. Some days I just, you know, want to plant flowers. And I just really want to just be a little housewife and take care of my kids. And, and I do all those things. Yeah, well, don't knock it. Those are the That's the vocation that God put you into, housewife and mom. Those, You see, those are the things that God has, that's the vocation God has given you to do good works, to serve and love your neighbor. I just, some days I just feel weak and I just feel weary in the battle. And I know many of you here have had one thing after the other that many of you have faced. And Jesus' great love for us, he made a way that we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay weak and weary. We actually can move to a broad place. Again, I just want to point out the fact that we know from clear passages of Scripture that being a mom, being a dad, being a good employee, these are all good works that we love and serve our neighbor doing. Um, you got to understand that that's kind of where the battle on the day-to-day -day basis is fought. Uh. These scriptures remind me again of who I am. Blessed be the Lord, my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Psalm 144, 1. Lord, I am your end-time warrior. Use me as your weapon against the enemy. 2 Corinthians 11, 1. The weapons of my warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. Satan. Yeah, truly, we, you know, the, the Christians are at war. We're soldiers, but we got to understand the context of that and what it means. Here, we got all the warfare passages, and she's somehow likening it to William Wallace world. Um, yeah. You have lost the war in heaven. 
Revelation 17, 14, let all the enemies that make war with the Lamb be destroyed. Again, Revelation 17, 14, I do not war after the flesh, but I war after the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. And what does it mean to war after the Spirit? Lord, thunder upon the enemy, release your voice, hail stones and coals of fire, Psalm 18, 13. Send out your arrows and scatter them. Shoot out your light and discomfort them. Psalm eighteen seventeen. Deliver, deliver me from my strong enemy, from them that are too strong for me. Psalm eighteen seventeen. Deliver me and bring me into a large place. Yeah, notice the verbs there. Deliver me. Who's doing the warring? Christ is. In Psalm eighteen nineteen, and the Lord would say, "I am your battle axe." I am your weapon of war. Jeremiah 51, 20. You have given me the necks of my enemies, and I will... Yeah, again, um, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of the forgiveness of sins. If we're going to wage war with Christ and his cross, it's to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. That's how they're translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, based on us proclaiming in history what Christ has done for us. Destroy them in the name of Jesus. Psalm 1840. I am your anointed, and you give me great deliverance. Psalm 1850. And this is what William Wallace did with his freedom. Oh, no. And now we're getting a Braveheart clip. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that, you know, at the beginning of this, when Pastor Tim introduced his wife via video, and he said that God had given her a special anointing to, you know, share talk about these things. No, he hasn't. Um, no. Yeah, okay. Paint your face blue and... Aren't you feeling inspired? What has happened to Christian preaching? I mean, seriously. Hey, Jonathan. Here comes the sappy, manipulative music, which is uh, kind of like a, an evangelical sacrament, if you would. You can tell that the Holy Spirit's, you know, there because of the music gently playing in the background. You guys can stand. After this, we're going to move into our prayer time and our corporate deliverance time. Oh, no. And yeah, I got to keep playing. Let those issues of unforgiveness and... Issues of unforgiveness. Fear and rejection. Uh, issues of unforgiveness, fear and rejection. Okay, those are issues. All right. Roll through your spirit. 
Just let them roll through your spirit. Say, God. Yeah, how do I let them roll through my spirit? Are they up on a hill and I just remove the board and they start to roll down? What does that mean? Is there any part of that that's hanging on to me? So I want to be free. So as they're rolling, they're hanging on. Got it. Okay. I want a war from a place of freedom. Yeah. So you got to get to the place of freedom so that you can war against the rolling rejection thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody stay standing. I'm going to open us in prayer and then I'm going to begin to ask you to repeat after me. We're going to get, how many of you ready to get rid of some stuff today? Let's just get rid of some stuff today. Yeah, you know, just take it to the uh, the goodwill and, you know, get rid of it. You may have even prayed these prayers before, but you feel like you need to do it again. So let's just do it again. Okay. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you today recognizing, first and foremost, the price that Jesus paid. I'm glad you're recognizing that. For our total freedom when he died on the cross for us. He paid, but he, he rescued us from death from hell and the grave, from sickness, from infirmity, from disease and affliction. Yeah, sounds like the word faith heresy to me. He rescued us from the onslaught of spiritual bondages and strongholds. And right now we plead the blood of Jesus over every person here for safety and health and protection against the wiles of the devil. We thank you, Father, that our weapons of warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Yeah, like the stronghold of uh, women preaching in the church. That's a, absolutely an enemy stronghold that needs to be pulled down by the clear teaching of God's word. We give you praise for the authority of your son's name, Jesus. I want everyone to say after me, we stand in unity. Okay, here comes the... As a corporate body of believers, and we break off the demonic stronghold. We break off. Oh boy. Okay. Of unforgiveness. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. We stand together. We're gonna break off the demonic stronghold of. Open your eyes if your eyes are closed. Keep your eyes open during this part. We tell you to go. In the name of Jesus. You have no power in this place. Or with these people, you have already suffered defeat at the cross. And we apply that now to our lives in Jesus' name. We break any spirits of opposition and retaliation from unforgiveness now. And we send you to the feet of Jesus to be dealt with there. Okay. We stand in unity as a corporate body of believers and we break off the demonic stronghold of rejection. The demonic stronghold of rejection. I had no idea. So, I mean, if you went to the, you know, the junior high prom and uh, no one asked you to dance, and that was part of the demonic stronghold of rejection, apparently, that Satan sent to really mess you up. Yes, we tell you to go in the name of Jesus. You have no power in this place. What exactly is the demonic stronghold of rejection anyway? Where does the Bible mention this? Or with these people, you have already suffered defeat at the cross. And we apply that now to our lives. You go ahead, yeah. In Jesus' name, we break any spirit of opposition or retaliation 
Yeah, you got to get rid of those spirits of opposition and retaliation. Man, this is tough to watch. And here's the reason why is because it is like focused on the wrong thing and it's a misapplication of God's word and it's being taught in a really rebellious way by a woman who shouldn't be teaching and preaching. Ah, man. Lord Jesus Christ, please, please open their eyes to the deception that they are in bondage to. The false reading of your word, the misunderstanding of the cross, the rebellion against what your word clearly teaches, open their eyes and set them free. Bring them to true repentance and contrition and sorrow for these sins that are being committed here, that they may be forgiven Know that they're forgiven by what Christ has done. For as your word says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But you are faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we confess these sins to you. Lord, bring the folks in this congregation to the point where they see this sin for what it is, truly sin and rebellion against you. That you would, be, that you would set them free from the deception of the devil to the bondage that they are in, in false doctrine, false teaching, and a false gospel, and a false reading of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. From rejection. Now. And we send you to the feet of Jesus to be dealt with by him there. And we stand in unity as a corporate body of believers. And we break off the demonic stronghold of fear. We oh, tell you to go in the name of Jesus. You have no power in this place. Well, actually, Satan has a lot of power in this place by the very fact that, well, you're preaching, Harriet. These people, you have already suffered defeat at the cross. And we apply that now to our lives. In Seriously, where is any of this taught in the Bible? In Jesus' name. And we break any spirit of opposition or retaliation from fear now. And we send you to the feet of Jesus to be dealt with there. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. That All right, we're done. Yeah, sorry, you, you don't get to pray for us anymore, Harriet. <sighs> wow, 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 wow. You know anybody who goes to this church, reach out to them. Show them from God's word that what's taking place there is not biblical, that they're twisting God's word, they're not rightly reading it, that they're off on a quixotic campaign and i quixotic referring to don quixote here i mean this is just like don quixote i mean it's as if something has melted her brain and she's off slaying windmills off on the crusade that isn't true spiritual warfare not at all this is not what scripture refers to or teaches when it talks about spiritual warfare this is off topic off-subject, in complete rebellion to the clear teaching of the Word of God, and twisting God's Word along the way, and having a form of godliness, but really denying the power thereof. Sad, sad, sad. 
our prayers should go out to the folks there at that church in Wilmington, North Carolina. All right. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>